Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's The Wonky Show. The government is trying to reduce stigma and increase support for students who are lonely. We'll assess the plans. Gillian Keegan is urging VCs to just stop, just stop oil. The LLE becomes law and he's is making measures on meaningful work more meaningful. But what does it all mean? It's all coming up. Departmental approach from the government, which almost had commissioned the poll with the headline that it wanted it to produce on the pre- press release, predefined. <laughs> Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and joining me to sort our rubbish into seven separate bins, as usual, three fabulous guests. In Gravesend, Selena Bolingbrook is Principal at the Building Crafts College. Selena, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, Jim, we took part in Open House London weekend last weekend at the Building Crafts College, which was the first time we'd done so. And I was delighted to welcome 15 visitors, which was actually exceeded my expectations and not all of them had got lost on the way to the West Ham game so that was fantastic and in Biggles way Jonathan Woodhead is policy advisor at Birkbeck University of London Jonathan your highlight of the week please thank you yeah uh, well this this past week we've uh, had a, a very interesting lecture at Birkbeck from Ken Elisa who is the Lord Lieutenant of, uh, of Greater London which was quite an unusual speaker and he was talking around social mobility and lifelong learning so I uh, had an almost packed house for that one so uh, yeah it was, uh, it was very interesting to uh, to hear what you had to say. Great stuff. And in Morecambe, Michael Salmon is news editor at Wonky. Michael, your highlight of the week, please. It was my son's birthday this week, so we had a lovely day. Started with a trip to the dentist and ended with vomiting on the kitchen table. But it was actually really nice, those two bookends aside. <laughs> Extraordinary. So yes, we start this week with loneliness. Freshers' weeks are underway across the country and DCMS is winging it, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you, Jim. It was, yeah, it was a very, I guess, a slightly left field piece of work from DCMS although I realise they do have responsibility for loneliness if that is a rather unusual portfolio. Um, there was some um, research commissioned by DCMS from YouGov around student loneliness and it was saying that 43% of 18 to 34 year olds would be judged if they were, you know, if they felt lonely which I thought was a rather sad indictment of things. I mean it did go on the report to, to look at a 10 point plan many of which I think seemed obvious to people but it's always worth reiterating these things but it's also about the things it didn't say I mean, where do postgraduate students fit within that? Where do international students fit within that? And more importantly, where do commuter students also fit within that as well? And that was a little bit missing, I felt, from from some of the information that came out. But it was, I guess, it's a useful part of the debate. I mean, the one thing that struck me from it was that at least 60% of students would strike up a conversation if they felt lonely. So it wasn't all doom and gloom. And, and clearly, this is part of a, a broader set of work that I think the government are doing around mental health and better health all around. I did think the, uh, the partnership with Wingstop was rather curious. I think they've only got about 20 branches around the UK, although curiously, one of the 
those is in Bloomsbury. So I guess next time I'm in, I'll, I'll try and pop in and see if information's on the screens to to see if they're following through on what they said they would do. But, but you know, I guess this is further evidence of, of the world as it is, you know, post-COVID and people sort of coming out of that increased isolate, you know, increased isolation of that time and socialization. So I'm um, an interesting part of the debate, but, you know, hopefully it will help some people, but I suspect it may not be enough. Selena, there's a particular framing here, isn't there, which is essentially that this problem, it, to the extent to which it's a problem, is an individual problem for individuals to solve, but that might not be the full picture, might it? Yeah, I think that is problematic. And I think it is clear that this piece of work does frame it around individual responsibility. And some of the critics of the piece of the research have, you know, pushed forward on highlighting that. I think part of the... Well, it's not. I think it's the curious nature of why this piece of research has been commissioned by the government and by DCMS in particular right now. This is not a DFE commission into students' mental health, but I think best you could say it is, you know, fiddling around the edges of what is a very serious issue in terms of the declining mental health of not just students, but young people generally. And I think also to contextualise it as something that is just a post-pandemic issue would also be misguided. I think if you look at the serious research around this area, there are far bigger factors that have been at play, you know, certainly over the last five, if not the last 10 years. And, And two that I would push forward that have been highlighted in more serious research, one being the impact and influence of social media, and the second being the impact of essentially the cost of living and poverty. And I think if we think about it from a young person's perspective, particularly those who are trying to study poverty and feeling like there is less money to enable those young people to fulfil their ambitions, whether it be, you know, the removal of EMA, you know, sort of 10 years ago, right through to the declining value of the maintenance grant in higher education right now, I would argue those are, well, it's not really me arguing, the serious research that is out there has find, found a much stronger link between those environmental conditions and young people's mental health rather than precious weak loneliness. Michael, we shouldn't moan too much, should we? Because, you know, not just this week I was banging on about the fact that it only ever seems to be DFE that worries about students. This is this is a good thing, isn't it? It's sort of something that's neither here nor there. It felt like to me, it came out on Monday morning, it was in the Telegraph and the Guardian and, you know, the government's doing a little thing around Freshers Week just to sort of raise attention, also get a bit of evidence through their polling. When the actual gov.uk press release came out, it actually found it quite infuriating. The, the title of it was Lonely Seems to be the Hardest Word for Students to Say, which, you know, slightly jokey press release title. <laughs> and, and, you know, and also really trying to say very clearly, as Selena sort of alluded to, that, you know, the issue is we need to get students talking more about the loneliness. You know, but that's not, you know, that, that was, that came out of the polling. So, you know, what do we have? 43% of the, of the, the students polled agreed that they'd worry about being judged if they admitted feeling lonely. You know, but there was lots of other things, you know, almost 40% of students said they felt isolated from their peers. 24% said they'd felt lonely often or always in the previous year. You know, so there were lots and lots of other issues there that weren't just about, you know, students just need to talk about loneliness and and that will help them. You know, there's, there's all these issues around the cost of living, the lack of contact time, the lack of space on campus, the poor quality accommodation 
that we know students are in. So, you know, there is that thing about, oh, it's nice another government department thought about students for a minute. But we could also say it as it's still that issue around all the different silos of government, you know, who's who's responsible for housing, who's responsible for education quality, who's responsible for, for sort of immigration and visa rules. Um, and then someone else completely different is responsible for whether they feel lonely or not. It's, it's not joined up government in any way. Jonathan, one of the things I've been doing over the past couple of years is actually tracking the DCMS loneliness strategy. And, and, you know, to be fair to it, there's actually quite a bit that's going on with other groups that they've identified. So, for example, you know, senior citizens has been a kind of big focus with quite a lot of money, community groups funded and so on. Whereas every time until now DCMS has said anything about students, it's effectively, you know, you can read the email that's been sent by a desperate official in DFE to kind of bulk out, you know, whatever it is. Is the, the, the kind of overall report. Is, is there a case, do you think, for, for, for a kind of cross-government strategy here? And what, you know, what, what, what could that look like? Yeah, it could well be. I mean, there, there have been different, as you say, there have been different interventions already. But it's, I guess the challenge is perhaps are different for different age groups as well and different types of people. So it's whether you can sort of, uh, you know, appropriately resource and, and support that. I mean, older people have different challenges from younger people as well, won't they? So, yeah, it's, um, I think I think they may well be, but you probably would need to have some quite yeah high quality research to find out where that might be. Selena, one of the things that does strike me is we obviously have, I mean, as you know, you, you've referenced some of it, really quite rich research into, you know, why students might be lonely, what can improve their belonging and so on but actually you know apart from this little bit of kind of you know press release polling we haven't really seen any response from government on that have we no and i suspect that is because the issues that serious research points to are not issues that the government whichever department you might point the finger at has actually got any significant sort of welly or commitment to changing the environment whether it be about housing transport costs, access to mental health services and indeed other health services, as well as the state of the higher education system, not, you know, in terms of, as I've said, declining value of the maintenance grant, but just think about the experience that students have had over the last few years. They're all issues that need to be solved, not even at the level of the university, but they are systemic issues and they are wider than higher education. And I think, you know, this to me is an example of, you know, departmental approach from the government, which almost had commissioned the poll with the headline that it wanted it to produce on the press release predefined. There is, Michael, there is stuff that universities can do here, isn't there? I mean, I was with with a group of SABs last week in a student union and there were four of them and two of them said in their first couple of weeks they'd you know they'd worked on a kind of group project together and got to know all sorts of people and two of them said well they were kind of plunged into 500 room 500 people in a room lectures and never really got to know anyone until January so I mean there are things that universities can do aren't there yeah completely you know I think one of the things that stood out despite this slightly odd thing about the you know the partnership or the the joint campaign with this restaurant chain wing stop which I've, I've never heard of actually you know but you I think actually <laughs> yeah clearly, clearly. Uh, but there is something really there about food and about meals and about sort of communal spaces for eating which i think is a really good is actually you know they've hit on something quite important there and where i think we already know lots of universities are doing really good things here and the flip side as you mentioned and from our many of our sort of you know those of us who are external to he but are often on university campuses you know the struggle to find places to sit and relax and to have dinner with friends and you know to, to sit down and have have a sandwich with someone on your course between 
lectures. That is that is a struggle. You know, that, that was one of the items that stood out to me as, yeah, they're on to something there in a very slight and, you know, nascent way. And it would be really interesting to see, you know, sustained set of policy interventions from the government, but also from institutions and institutions in partnership with their student unions to really do some, continue to and to do all the good work that's going on about food, meals, space and getting students eating together. And then just before we come off this, Jonathan, obviously one of the issues here is the framing mm. around kind of 18-year-old partying yep. undergraduates. Now, yep. you know, sometimes people say to me that mature or part-time students don't, don't don't want friends, they want qualifications, but this is nonsense, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, yes, I mean, I think uh, particularly from the London perspective, what, what we're seeing is, is that more, you know, more students are staying at home because of the cost of living crisis, but they still want a, you know, traditional in inverted commas university experience and they do want you know student student union and, and places to meet and places to to you know socialize and things so yeah i think i think it's it's it is, it is a challenge i mean maybe mature students in in some cases have, have other commitments so that's different but but certainly those commuter type students and, and those studying part-time will, will will certainly deserve and and uh, need need and deserve you know having that extra space i mean in one of our newer buildings at Birkbeck, we even created a space with you know microwaves and this that and the other so where, where students can come in if they want to, to have food and have you know have space where they can meet with people in their course or, or otherwise so hopefully by creating those particular spaces you hope that students are able to sort of socialize a bit more i mean i know the the uh, particularly the international team and, and others and access team do quite quite well at the start of the year to try and organize events and put things together because of the kind of slightly disparate nature of some of the home students so that that's perhaps less of an individual issue more from where community solution perhaps but but i think as, as selena mentioned in the in the earlier piece there's only ever so much an institution can do i mean we would always do what we can but you know then do you need to be you know more i guess national or, or perhaps structural solutions to some of these things around maintenance support and uh, and you know housing etc as well well great lots of interesting stuff actually more interesting stuff on the site about all of this we'll put some links in the show notes for now let's see who's been blogging for us this week I'm Simon Meacher, Head of the Executive and Governance Office at Newcastle University. I've written for Wonky this week about the Magna Charta Universitatum, the unifying statement of core values of universities, that is to say, academic freedom, institutional autonomy and responsibility towards society. The Magna Charta applies to higher education across the globe, enshrining the interconnected nature of the challenges that universities are facing. Thanks to its universal appeal, the Charter now has well over 900 signatories. The Magna Charta Observatory, as custodians of the Charter, monitor the status of academic freedom and institutional autonomy. In the last few years, this has led it to mount a public defence of these values when member institutions face challenging circumstances. In these turbulent times, when the need for universities to demonstrate their purpose appears ever greater, the Magna Charta transcends boundaries and offers a compelling affirmation of the shared bonds between higher education institutions. Now, late last week, VCs across the country got a letter from Gillian Keegan, no less. Michael, what did she have to say? Yeah, this is so. This is an interesting one. So there, there were reports in the press sort of like you say at the end of the last week in the saturday papers that the campaign group just stop oil is planning to as the as the press put it significantly escalate activity on university campuses over the autumn there were leaked emails from the group which supposedly sort of divulging plans that to recruit at least 500 university students there'll be a huge new wave of protest of protests spraying universities with fire extinguishers was mentioned pouring fake oil and then followed by mass participation it like slow marches near campuses later on in the semester this so this is this is what's been sort of leaked to the press if true and sort of straight off the back of that Gillian Keegan 
sprang into action and, and wrote to university vice chancellors with a, with a letter that was quite a lot of it was sort of just saying what all the good work the government's doing on net zero, which is funny seeing as what happened a couple of days later. But, you know, she's basically, it was quite a sort of mild letter in the sense that it didn't have any particular directions. It was just sort of encouraging university leadership to, you know, make sure students are aware of the consequences in, of, you know, taking part in criminal activity, being prepared, you know, and um, ensuring that universities were thinking about it, which I'm sure they already are. I'm just sort of thinking it must have been about a year ago when there was certainly speculation and there was commentary and calls from some Tory MPs to make Just Stop Oil a prescribed group. So on a par with terrorist organisations. I don't believe that that has been taken forward to my knowledge anyway. But I mean, what strikes me is what can universities do about this? You know, I'm sure that there will be stalls at Freshers' Fairs, recruiting members for Just Stop Oil, an Extinction Rebellion. And, you know, there's nothing a university can or indeed might want to do about that. Many universities are extremely committed to awareness and actions that will impact on, you know, public awareness and government action on climate change. I mean, given where we are this week with the Prime Minister's latest announcement, which somewhat rolls back, I think this is a case of, you know, universities as well as students being, you know, quite some way removed from where the current government is in its thinking about the commitment to the the climate. You know, this is literally young people's futures. And I think that certainly the Just Stop Oil campaign is 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 perhaps underestimating if it's it's been saying that they want to recruit 500 university students. I suspect there'll be far more than that. What can universities do to prepare beyond what they might ordinarily do in terms of the liaison with local police around potential issues of disruption? I think if I was sitting in a vice chancellor's office, I, I, you know, I really would sort of be sort of thinking we don't sit on our hands, but I'm not sure what action can be taken in advance around this. So you question why has the letter been sent? And I think the letter has been sent. It, again, it's about positioning, it's about symbolism, it's about, you know, tokenism. Jonathan, one of the things that obviously Gillian Keegan didn't mention was the Freedom of Speech Higher Education Act. Sorry, the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act. Is that, is that, does, does that matter? Oh, that's an interesting thought, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I guess there's the issue of, I guess, freedom of speech, people, you know, saying and, and doing what they, you know, what they feel is right. But there's also, you know, it's as ever, where does the line get drawn in terms of disruption or, you know, potentially civil disobedience or whatever. So I think it's, you know, if Just Stop All or Extinction Rebellion want to recruit people at Freshers' Fair, you know, then that's that's kind of on them. But I think it obviously does draw a line when you've got, you know, a disruption and, and, and so on to other people. So maybe that's why it was left out. I don't know whether any lawyers saw the letter that went out. But as you say, it's possibly aimed more at the audience of of, uh, of, of newspapers and, and, you know, politicos, political journalists rather than maybe um, vice chancellors themselves, really. It, it kind of has slight echoes of the Robert Jenrick IHRA letter, actually that came out about sort of 18 months ago you know what would uh, you know what would happen although that possibly was even is even worse in terms of the name and shame side of things but but yeah I mean I, you know, if, if Gillian felt it was appropriate to send a letter that was kind of that's entirely up to her but I suspect as you say the audience was 
quite different. I mean, more broadly, Michael, I mean, really, now that the environment and climate change, certainly this week, has become what I think the commentators would call a wedge issue, this is, of course, also one of those wedge issues where generally universities and certainly students are on the other side of the government. And that will make for an interesting 12 months, won't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, <clears throat> the, the, the effect of the government writing a letter to university management saying, can you make the case for us to students, you know, sort of hinting that. I mean, basically, I think there'll be a lot in university management thinking, okay, how do we make clear to our student body that we are taking all these different steps on sustainability? And, you know, go protest somewhere else, you know, go into central London and and stop the traffic there, unless you're a university in central London. Sorry, <laughs> sorry Jonathan. But, um, you, you know, that's kind of what I was getting at, but never mind. You know, Assemble, yeah. Mallet Street. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, next door to my office, but never mind. <laughs> but, but, you know, there'll be universities will be worried about action taking place on their campus as opposed to wanting to discourage students from getting involved in 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 these groups necessarily you know circling back to this free speech issue which i think is really interesting this this is going to become a big big wedge issue how it's going to relate with to things like the freedom of speech act and you know even prevent we've seen as been talked about in terms of climate extremism but, you know we've seen over the summer that groups like the free speech union who were very influential in getting the freedom of speech but onto the legislation, you know, they are pivoting towards stuff around climate change. You know, they had Critiquing more in the climate education work, aren't they? Yeah, more more in the world of work, right? Look, they were looking particularly at, you know, which is relevant for many universities that they were looking at sort of climate accreditations or sort of carbon accreditations that people can get as a condition of progression. How it, how these sort of environmental actions can form part of, of performance reviews, and how basically this is this goes against equality legislation and goes against people's, you know, right to disagree with the existence of climate change and and you know at some point this is going to come into sort of things around teaching students and assessing students based on you know climate literacy we're going to see all these things brought to bear you know partly just from as as it kind of percolates in the popular imagination but also as the as the freedom of speech legislation starts getting implemented we've already got lots of people sort of hovering on the edges waiting to tell universities what they think it means selena across your career you've been no stranger to student protest often disruptive student protest it's a rite of passage isn't it or is it i think if you look back history would suggest that certainly for higher education students it's a rite of passage not all students i think you know fe college it felt a very different environment but i thought what was quite interesting i don't know if anybody caught the chris packham documentary that was on on wednesday night this week but actually some of the people that he interviewed who i mean the, the sort of premise of the the documentary was about is it time to break the law have things got so bad and peaceful protest you know impact does it have but one of the people that he was interviewing was saying every social movement has required some form of highly disruptive radical and sometimes violent change so i think it's interesting times socially to be debating how can people not just young people people because i think that's something about the climate change movement that perhaps is different to other protest movements is that this is spans generations. But how do you make an impact on not just public perception, but government action in a world where people feel increasingly powerless within our Western democracies? So yes, a rite of passage to some extent, but a rite of passage that if we follow the means of protest, demonstrations, meetings, 
letter writing that we've had in the past, I think people are much more cynical about those being something that really make a difference and really work. I think I think the only thing I would say, Jim, is that you said that the you know universities and students are on one side and the government's on the other. But it's not entirely clear where the public sit on all of this as well. I mean, you've seen the backlash against the ULES recently and there's various other things. And I think I think universities as a as, as a body, as a being, also get their legitimacy from the public as well. And I think we would just there's an interesting dimension to that as well is that you know if, if the public has, has you know as a body if you like sending their young people to university or even you know as mature students whether they it still holds true i mean you know, i think that the public do understand and accept the issues around climate change but you know you can debate on the margins about pace and all the rest of it but but it's, it's whether the, the broader public would subscribe to those or you know have have some belief in those actions and, and that's why i'm unclear about because you know you see one survey says one thing one survey says another but i think we also need to be aware of you know public legitimacy for some of this sort of stuff. Well, interesting. it'd be interesting to see how this plays out. Now, every week on the show, we look back at how things were and how things came to be. With academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. So at the end of the Second World War, a post-war organisation of the further education, not defined as further education, but things that aren't universities, took place. And a lot of it focused on the proportion of advanced work that the colleges were doing. This included a lot of work for preparing students for London degrees. And an organisation was set out that put colleges into three groups, regional, area and local. So the Percy report sets all of this out, but there's still a need to develop a new technological qualification. So they say they hadn't been able to reach an agreement on what to do, but there was an issue about whether or not this was equivalent to a university first degree. The government acts and creates a council under Lord Hives, which is called the National Council for Technological Awards. And it develops a new kind of qualification that could be accessible to these colleges. It's a diploma of technology. The idea is it's going to be equivalent of a degree. It's going to have the same standing, but it's going to have key features which are going to be applicable to all of them. It's going to have a four-year, full-time setup. It's going to include a sandwich course. It's going to be very close to industry and how it develops. But also, excitingly, because technologists are a different kind of uh, uh, people, they're, they're, the idea is that they, they're going to form a different role in society, it has a very strong liberal studies thing to it. And so, in a diploma of technology, you will find a strong element of kind of liberal arts teaching. So, for example, there's a college that continue, you know, students can opt for a series of courses alongside their technological things on the Russian Revolution, on the art of the Renaissance. And there's a module called Cleopatra's Nose, which is the philosophy of history. You can also do um, conversational French. You can do the literature of the Jazz Age. There's an opportunity for students to take lots of different things alongside their technical qualification. The places that really focus on this are becomes designated at the top end of this, the Colleges of Advanced Technology. They develop more of this work. There's a network of them around the country, again, a, a planned attempt to create these things. So when the time we get to the Robbins report, what he finds is that you've got a, a, a network of technological institutions, but kind of stymied because they're doing this diploma of technology. And so he recommends that immediate steps are taken to grant chartered status to these places and to transfer the responsibility of finance from the Department for Education to the University Finance Grants Committee, and then that these should become universities. So there's a, an upgrade 
both of these places. Sometimes people mistakenly refer to the, the new universities of the 50s and 60s as Robbins Universities. But if anything has the right to be called the Robbins Universities, it's the colleges of advanced technology that change. Robbins also notes the way that the council has worked in approving this diploma of technology in individual institutions has been important because they've attached great importance not only to the standards of the particular course that's being proposed, but to the general level and atmosphere of the work in the whole college. This system has worked well. So this is the way that they propose the new Council for National Academic Awards, the CNAA, will work. Yes, it will look at the individual courses, but it will also look at the general uh, uh, way in which the, the college is presenting itself and its ability to be a self-critical academic community. And so it's the CNAA twin system that takes forward and then develops all of the higher education provision outside the universities that we have up to 1992. Now, next up, a new piece of legislation has hit the statute books. And Selena, there's been a rebrand. There has. It feels like we've had this discussion a number of times, Jim, over the last two to three years. But the Lifelong Learning Brackets Higher Education Fee Limits Bill received royal assent this week and has now passed on to the statute books. So green light, everybody is on the line ready to go. The Lifelong Learning Entitlement, which is what this legislation is designed to enable, is now going to be called Lifelong Learning Entitlement. And I don't want to know how much was spent on marketing consultants to come up with that snappy name change. But it is apparently uh, you know, a response after feedback from the sector. I hope that's not the only thing that has changed in the proposals, given the feedback from the sector, because I think most people that I know who would have responded and given feedback, that wouldn't have been one of the big ticket items. Now, just to kind of refresh for people who haven't followed this as avidly as uh, myself and probably Jim, the LLE, good job that we've still got that acronym, Jim, because we would be confused, wouldn't we? is designed to cover essentially technical qualifications between level four and level seven. That was the original intent. You know, everybody moans that, you know, Britain is really bad at providing technical education. And this was the government's response to that. So the idea is that the technical qualifications that will eventually be delivered in short modules, as well as courses, they will be funded. Well, the courses would be funded from 2025 and kind of vague hope that modules could be introduced from 27, 28. And people might remember that there was a pilot scheme in the sector last year, a funded pilot scheme to look at essentially short courses that covered the areas of what the government defined as high demand technical qualifications. Jonathan, I mean, behind this rebrand, there is a serious issue, isn't there, which is, you know, big questions about demand for the sorts of things that the LLE is supposed to enable. So, you know, apart from, you know, the grim prospects of the of the student loans company rebranding as the student learning company, <laughs> um, it, you know, it, is it the case that a student that's worried about debt you know, potential kind of short course student is going to, you know, not realise that that this involves debt, and then they'll eventually realise it's debt, and then aren't they just going to be angrier? Well, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I've thought about this the past few days myself, actually, and I mean, sometimes there is there is some benefit in terms of the initial, you know, branding that wouldn't sort of put people off, and that they might, you know, then take a second look. But yeah, I mean, fundamentally, removing loan from the title of the life and learning title isn't still the same, you know, still the same design, still the same product. So. I'm not sure. I mean, there is obviously a broader point around debt aversion and, and particularly mature students around this, especially when 
career outcomes aren't clear. I mean, I think the postgraduate loans, for example, have shown that people are prepared to take student loans on if they think there's you know reasonably clear career path or earnings path. Whereas obviously with the LLE, in some ways it may not be very clear. So I mean, I think I think the 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 lifelong learning lifelong learning entitlement, sorry, trips off the tongue a little bit better than the lifelong loan entitlement. It's less less off putting, but yeah, fundamentally it's still going to be the same product. So I mean, I think we'll just have to wait and see on that one. But it is you know I think the demand is out there, and particularly in certain uh, more urban areas. I think there's a big demand for short course, you know, short course learning, upskilling very quickly. But, you know, but how that's going to play out across the country is, is, is going to be the real challenge. Michael, obviously, this is down the statute book and, and the implementation is well beyond when we might expect a general election. What, what, what do we think Labour might do with this? Labour have certainly in broad terms always said they're in favour of it. They like the idea of doing something <clears throat> that that sort of, you know, is, is what employers want and it's reskilling and it's, you know, they like the idea. They like the sort of broader tertiary unifying of FE and HE to some extent. I think they are going to get dumped on their plates the question of costs because it is going to be expensive for, for institutions to start doing this. It's going to strain finances even more. I think at some point there's going to need to be some proper investment from government, you know, just to get things off the ground, to make things happen, could be doing more pilots, could be doing, you know, sort of promotion, could be some level of institutional incentive. And that's not going to sit well with Labour if they come in and realise that they have to spend money on it. The other thing they've often talked about, and they've sort of been allied with voices in the HE sector here, is that they've they've sort of expressed quite a lot of scepticism that 30 credits is the correct minimum level for a course or bundle of courses. You know, so they've they've lots of, you know, Open University, Staffordshire, various institutions have made this case quite a lot that actually employers don't want students to do a full module. You know, they they they, they don't they don't want their employees to do a full module, you know, 12 weeks of, of quite a lot of study. They want something a little bit more micro, a little bit more like on the sort of 10 credits, 15 credits side. So Labour have already hinted. 30, yeah. 30 credits that's more intensive. Yeah, yeah, it could be too. So, I mean, you know, there, there'll be lots of interesting, flexible ways that institutions could try to address this, not particularly helped by the fact that maintenance will not be available for distance learners as it stands. But um, yeah, so Labour have hinted that they might look to go sort of more micro. But yeah, it's going to it's gonna fall to them, basically. That's the thing. You know, there's an election coming almost certainly next year. And all of this stuff that DfE say they still need to do around, you know, further secondary legislation, a technical consultation, you know, another bit in the autumn, it's all going to fall right in general election year. So inevitably, it's going to be delayed and Labour are going to have to think what they're going to do about it. Selena, as you say, we have had this conversation before, I think, but um, if 9250 isn't enough um, for a full-time student, even if you kind of chop that into modules or, or collections of modules, that, that that also won't be enough given the, the given the sort of on costs of, a, of any student enrolling. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a number of issues here, which is, let me just roll back a little bit. So I think one of the things, if we take, I was going to say, if you had a list of problems with loan systems in education, you might what? Well, sort of on a matter of principle, start with at least certain levels of education should be free. If you really want to incentivize people and use particularly technical education to drive economic growth, that I think is still a valid argument, albeit not popular in any political party, it seems these days. I'm just going to put that to one side. There is a number of other recurring problems with loan systems. So you might take broad, lots of examples there. Inefficiency. And actually, when we think about inefficiency, it's how well does a loan system serve the individual customer, learner, student? How well does it serve the education provider? And how well does it serve the 
government as funder and custodian of that loan system. And I think that inefficiency question looms large with this. And then the final thing I think around loan systems, particularly in England at the moment, how well do different loan systems join up? I work in the sector and I work across HE and FE. And I find myself getting confused at times about what would be the right learner journey to advise on in terms of somebody who didn't have family help, spousal help, and needed to rely on a loan system to get them through from tertiary through to higher education. I think it's making things much more complex. So I think in thinking about, you know, the the, the sort of prospects of a, a new government and what they take on, I mean, I would always want somebody to look at the, 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 the systems in place and to be bold enough to really take some big reform in actions because just adding another loan system into this without looking at what is happening with advanced learner loans, the future prospects of SLC loans, advanced career loans. I just think this is making a bad system problem potentially worse. And I'm not convinced that the way that this has sort of, you know, we've yet to see some of the detail, the way in which this will be implemented will bring about the step change in take up of technical education that not just the government says it needs, but actually I think is clear to most serious commentators, the economy really needs and it really needs it right now to be able to transition into new industries. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And finally this week, HESA is trying to better measure graduate outcomes. What's going on here, Michael? Yeah, so we've had an update this week on the progress of HESA's quest to really try to get good data on on what you might call the quality of employment. Although, you know, they've they've given it the snappy name of the job design and nature of work measure, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. But, um, you know, it is a very interesting thing. It's based on responses to three items in, in the graduate outcome survey that students do sort of a year and a bit after after graduating from their undergraduate courses. So it looks at these items of whether graduates think their current work is meaningful, whether it fits with their future plans, and whether they're using what they learned during their studies in their current role. And it sort of combines them together and, and makes them into a single measure so we can look at, you know, by, you know, what's this sort of work fulfillment measure like for different subject areas, for different salary levels, for different sort of demographics. And so there's some really interesting findings. Uh, for example, 
people, I think one of the ones that stood out to a lot of people was that fulfillment in one's role is not particularly well correlated with earnings. Once you get onto a sort of salary beyond about sort of the low £20,000, remember we're talking here about people shortly after graduation, you know, and so it found that in general, that, that wasn't a big indicator of how fulfilled people felt. You know, another thing that stood out was that there's ethnic disparities here, even once you control for, you know, all the other sort of characteristics like where you are, what kind of employment you're in and what you studied, that there are disparities with people from minority ethnic backgrounds reporting less fulfillment than graduates. So really interesting and it's still being developed. Could be a, a very, very useful data point for, for the sector in the future. Jonathan, do you think uh, if uh, Hisa gets there on this, this will make a difference in that sort of public discourse around the value of HG? Um, I, w- I would hope so. I mean, I think uh, my view on a lot of this on the, on the data is that, you know, it should help make informed policy and should help him make informed decisions but the danger is it can often then be used as a sort of as a <laughs> as a weapon to beat people with sometimes because it doesn't fit a particular viewpoint so i think i mean i'm, I'm generally in favor of more data to you know to support these informed decisions but it, it's you know it's how it's how it's used and you know will it create some sort of other other rivalry or some sort of you know ranking or something and that's 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 always my main concern but yeah you would you would hope so and i think the fulfillment in in the workplace is what you know is what i think a lot of people are looking for from a you know sort of graduate you know sorry undergraduate studies and then on graduation yeah welcome the attempt to measure value beyond earnings definitely i think the problem always from a kind of social science point of view with these studies and and you know this study highlights both subject difference so you know saying medicine and dentistry comes out top creative arts and design bottom is and it's a bit like some of the student satisfaction surveys I mean I've sort of come from a creative discipline myself and quite often you find that sort of people's approach outlook their kind of starting point affects how they self-report their feelings which is what their feel you know fulfillment is about differently to people who again you know come from a sort of different base a different culture so I think it's good that this is there but I think like Jonathan said I, I would be wary about a sort of early application of these results in a way in which it should steer certainly what universities should provide I mean I, I think kind of my experience of coming from a creative discipline is people's starting points quite often can be disgruntlement and you know uh, I suppose to sound a you know creativity is part of problematizing and and finding a way out of that so I just treat it with some caution but I do think it's interesting and I do think it is important that we see the value of education beyond earnings so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out just search for the wonky show wherever you get your podcasts and to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE do head to the site and click subscriptions so thanks very much to Selena, Jonathan, Mike, Michael, who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week, and until then, stay wonky. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.